0: Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Craig Goldstein. Craig is the minor league editor at Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at CD Goldstein. Craig, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today.
1: Thanks for having me, Ross. I appreciate it.
0: Well, Craig, BP just released their. Uh, top 101 list which ranks prospects throughout the minor league system so we're going to get into that a lot today but before we do I ask everyone this right at the beginning tell me what got you into baseball in the first place
1: oh that's a good question I guess it goes back to I mean if we're if we're taking the long view um, I mean I played as a child my, my father was a big baseball fan uh, a big Dodgers fan which influenced me a lot and I played all the way through high school and uh, I, I wasn't very good so I went to school at uh, UMass Amherst. I went for their sport management program with an eye towards uh, working in baseball down the line. Obviously uh haven't worked for, for MLB or a team, but, but working with Baseball Prospectus is is something higher than a consolation for me at least. These
0: lists get a lot of attention. People, The internet loves these these prospect lists. I love them too. How do you go about compiling these lists?
1: Yeah, well, um, I've been with BP for a few years. I've only been the, the minor league editor this past year, so um, I, I can really only speak uh, in terms of an organizer to, to this one, but uh, it, it kind of depends on the team that we have around us at the time. Uh, this year, we we had a lot of our prospect coverage led by Chris Crawford, and we've seen uh, there was some turnover with the people on the team, but, but people who... Get out to games and see a lot of these guys in person. Uh, contribute, and w- we each formulate our own lists. Uh, we we don't merely aggregate it, but we bring them together and then talk about kind of the differences between them to deb- debate the merits of of the different lists of where different players are and why. And then we bring that kind of um, I guess it, it's not aggregated, but but a new list that formed of that out of that discussion. And bring that to the full prospect team that we have at Baseball Prospectus, and take their criticisms and suggestions and critiques. And from that, we kind of go through and develop a full list, and then it's edited and revised and really scrutinized. We talk to people outside of our team as well, industry sources, um, and and really try and get as much input as possible. And then weigh that input with how we want to approach. You know. Our philosophy towards prospects and and our weights and things like that.
0: And what is the philosophy? How do you sort of rank guys with big star potential versus guys that may just contribute in the major leagues? What is the overall philosophy that Baseball Prospectus has when ranking prospects?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's it's fluid a little bit year to year, which isn't the most satisfying answer because we are something of a monolithic um, entity, being Baseball Prospectus. But the reality is that the people that form the group that makes this list do change every year you know a few years ago it was led by jason parks and he has a strong predilection for for high upside guys and he really pushed people i know i remember him being one of the first people to push Rhyme now and he was very aggressive in getting him on the list when he was a name very few people knew uh... last year it was headed up by chris mellon and nick Falaris. And they, they had very similar philosophies. They they worked with Parks a lot as well. I think we do continue that approach in terms of valuing high upside guys, but it's also influenced a little bit about the talent that is available at the time. Um, I know in our... Uh, In our discussion, someone like Orlando Garcia came up, and he's number 12 on the list, and he's someone who might not have the highest upside, but whose floor is extremely high as a uh, gifted defender, and someone who's really shown some promise with the bat the last uh, couple seasons. Now, he was someone who was back end of the top 100 last year. He was 93 in 2015. And he came and and the reason he was there was really because of his glove and some hint of an idea with the bat now he had a tremendous season and it was backed up by the scouting reports on on how he's handling the bat and how he's short to the ball and making hard contact and all of that but you know for him to be as high as he is I think is a little bit of a change um it, it's you know, I, th- this is a, a roundabout way of answering your question, so I apologize. But the reality is, it, it kind of does end up um, being a situational thing. For Arcea, there was just a lot of confidence in what he is. And for example, the guy right behind him, Trey Turner, already reached the major leagues. Uh, has been extremely good in the upper minors above Arcea even, but there's a little more risk involved with him and there's probably some more ceiling uh, involved with Turner as well, but the amount of risk uh, to get to that ceiling was just enough to put him behind Arcea, just as an example.
0: Do you feel like we're coming to an end as to what has been a massive wave of talent Coming into the game over the last five years, so many young players have come into the game and not just come in, they've become the best players in the game. Do you feel like this is the last of that class before we hit a little bit of a lull in prospects coming in? Elite prospects, I should say.
1: Yes and no. I I think, you know, you look at the top of this list, which is headed by Corey Seager, Byron Buxton, and Lucas Giolito, just as the top three, and I think those are prospects on par with any of the ones that we've seen come into the league over the last few years. Obviously, the immediate success of uh, Carlos Correa is, is something that we can't necessarily anticipate for these guys, but when you're talking about guys in terms of prospect value, I mean, you know, Buxton was a number one prospect for a lot of people last year so I certainly think he's among those that that type of talent and I think Giolito is one of the best pitching prospects we've seen uh, in, in the last several years maybe since you know his his organization made Steven Strasburg now I do think that it's a little thin in the upper minors. But what that means is that there's a there's a lot of talent that's further away. And so while there's a little more projection to be had with that talent, I don't know that it's any less elite. It's just we're we're not we haven't seen the evidence of its eliteness yet. Uh, an example of that to me would be Johan Moncada, who we have at number seven. I think he has a strong potential to be the number one prospect in baseball entering the 2017 season, and he spent the full year at Low-A Greenville. So we know his we know his scouting reports, we know his tools, but we don't know how they're going to manifest themselves as he moves up the chain, which is something that gave us confidence in guys like Correa and Lindor, or you know, if you want to go back to Trout and and those type of guys.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the players on the list itself. Corey Seager is the new number one. Buxton had been number one the previous two years. Tell me about Corey Seager. He's expected to be the Dodgers opening day shortstop and play throughout the season. What can Dodgers fans expect for him in the short term?
1: Yeah, I think we saw some of it at the end of the season last year um, he came he came up he ended up being their starter in the playoffs uh... For, for most of the games that they were in and he's just got a beautiful left-handed stroke uh... strong pitch recognition skill and he can be aggressive but he kind of ma- maintains that balance that's it's always dangerous to say to someone because it, it, it's hard to embody but he has that selective aggressive selectively aggressive approach at the plate um, and he's someone who's probably not going to show the type of power that someone like Correa did. He, he's not as flashy in that sense, but he's just got really strong back-to-ball abilities. He's got a very mature approach, approach at the plate. He has a very... Uh, his load is at times almost non-existent and yet he makes consistent hard contact so that's something that that was extremely impressive to me and you know as a lefty he's decent at hooking the ball down the line for home runs even though he's not necessarily going to be you know I, as someone familiar with the Dodgers he's not, Matt Kemp always hit the ball out to, to right center and left center field, he hit the ball out to the deepest parts of the park, I don't know if that's going to going to be Seeker's game, at least immediately. But he's someone who has, he does have plus power. I think it could go higher as he matures. I mean, this is a very young player, um, and so there's definitely time for him to grow into that body, which will obviously affect his defense. He's someone who doesn't have the range that you necessarily want at shortstop, but he gets to most balls, and the balls that he gets to, he's very good with. He has soft hands. He has a very strong arm, and it could be that as he fills out, as he matures, uh, he has to slide over to third base, but in in the near term, he should be a solid shortstop. Um, in the field.
0: Buxton is number two now. He's expected to be a part of the opening day mix as well for the Twins. Now, he's a guy that concerns me a little bit, and I know the tools are there, but guys who have an injury history, that worries me a little bit because I feel like when you get injured when you're 20, you tend to get injured when you're 25 and when you're 30 as well. The speed and the defense, we saw that last year. He struggled offensively. That's okay. Lots of guys struggle offensively when they first get called up, but I worry about the power. I don't know if the power is ever going to translate for. Buxton. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think that I think those are all very reasonable points of view. I, I would say with his injuries, they've seemed to be um, kind of freak injuries. You know, he had the collision in center field. Uh, he, they don't seem to be the type that are necessarily going to be recurring ones you know it's not a strain hamstring that he keeps straining and it's gonna be nagging at him they, they seem to be these significant uh, mind you but but kind of uh, random injuries that, that he's run into throughout his career and, and and the biggest problem with that to me is lost development time and so sure he came to the majors last year he got forty six games but I think you know the the overall rawness and the, the games missed showed up in him striking out over thirty percent which you know, was never really his game in the minors. He was not that type of swing and miss guy. So I think he's someone who I think that is likely to come down the swing and miss. I, you know, the power people had him as a potential average power guy. I think that ceiling remains intact. I don't know, I I agree with you, I don't know that he's going to get there. But I I think as a a ceiling, it remains intact. Again, this is someone who, you know, we talk about Seeger and him being young. Buxton, as long as we've known about him, is still only 22 years old. And so as he gets stronger, as he heads into his prime, it could be that, you know, he fills out and that his body is a little more sturdy um, as he adds some weight to it and he's able to... you know, get more into his weight transfer and put a little more loft on the ball, and and put some more over the fence. That said, I, I don't necessarily be see him being a, a twenty home run guy. Um, probably more in the fifteen home run range as, as as I see him right now.
0: And the thing with players who get these fluky injuries, but they keep getting them, I feel like players who are injury-prone are more likely to get those kind of injuries. Seeing Jacoby Ellsbury for many years in Boston, Ellsbury had a lot of fluky injuries where people collided into him and he fell wrong on a base, like just weird injuries that aren't like nagging hamstring things. But injuries have really hurt Ellsbury throughout his career, and I wonder if Buxton's on a similar
1: path yeah, I think that's a fair point, and it's something that that's true. It, you know, maybe he gets these freak injuries because someone else who was in that situation wouldn't be injured in that case. I think that's a fair point to make and and it's also I, I do buy into the I, the idea that the best predictor of injury is past injury. So you know he has these in his history, and it's fair to be concerned about that going forward just because we have evidence that it's happened. Um, I think Ellsberg is an interesting, is an interesting name to put out there for Buxton. I you know, I do try and avoid comps. I, I prefer to let prospects be who they are, are and not who someone else is. But in terms of someone who we, we saw what Ellsbury could do when he had that 31 home run season and is an MVP quality player. Um, and I think Buxton has that type of ceiling, right? If he's able to to put together that type of I think he has the tools to put together that type of season. Um, but it's also something that's been few and far between for Ellsbury, while still maintaining uh, an above-average ability. He, he obviously he earned that contract by the quality of his play in general uh, over his years with Boston. And I think it's reasonable to, to say that Buxton has the ability to be perhaps that type of quality player, if not also that type of frustrating player.
0: Lucas Giolito comes in at number three on the list. Future-grade fastball, eighty. Future grade curveball eighty, future roll eighty. That means that to me. I mean, is this guy the next Roger Clemens? What do you see him as?
1: Yeah. So this is this is obviously something that um, some people don't don't like to throw out eighties necessarily. I, I think I'm of the mind that. It's on the scale, and it's there to be used uh, for a reason, right? If you have someone who meets the criteria, that's what you put on them. Um, no, I don't think it means necessarily the next Roger Clemens, but I do think it means that we we anticipate Giolito being a future uh, top percentile pitcher in baseball. So if you want to say that's top five, top ten – yeah, I, I think that's his future role. Now, now we only say have it as role on our site, but but that's the role in the future. We're not saying that he'd step in tomorrow and be that, but it's it's something down the line. And and again, that's reflected in our our label of future tools, right? Future 80 fastball, future 80 curveball, 60 change. And and Ezra Wise, who wrote up our Nationals' top 10 prospects, did a great job of breaking down what exactly it is that makes uh Giolito Giolito uh he's just, he's extremely polished despite the missed time for uh Tommy John surgery that he had shortly after signing you know it this was part of the run where the Nationals were seemingly getting the best player in the draft Uh, for four consecutive seasons you know they obviously had Strasburg and Harper at number one but a lot of people liked Rendon when they got him at number six and then the same for Giolito he was heading into that season was likely going to be the first pitcher drafted 1-1 out of high school as a right hander and uh, he, he came down with that partial tear of his UCL or the arm it was an elbow injury and he didn't really throw most of the season and so they were able to get him at 16 overall but this is a very tall guy six foot six he gets a tremendous extension, really good playing. His fastball is in the mid to upper 90s with hard movement. He's got a curveball that is a bat misser that he can drop in for strikes as well. Um, and and he shows an idea of what he's doing with his changeup. It, it lags behind the other two pitches, but when your other two pitches are top of the scale, that's, some, that's somewhat expected.
0: <laughs> are those three players the only ones that were in serious contention for the number one overall spot?
1: You know, Seeger kind of took that, that crown pretty easily, and it wasn't that there's not a discussion to be had around Buxton or Giolito, or actually J.P. Crawford was also mentioned uh, as well. But Seager's combination of success in a brief stint at the major league level, ultimate success um, in the minors, he he had a tremendous season at double and triple A last year, as well as in the majors, youth um, value of the position. We're talking about an up the middle player and the potential to be the type of offensive force he is. At that position, it it wasn't something that was debated too heavily. There, There were certainly discussions around it, but people seemed to agree that this was the guy that we wanted in the front of our list pretty easily.
0: J.P. Crawford comes in at number four for the Phillies, shortstop for the Phillies, related to Carl Crawford. Very different player than Crawford, though. Uh, J.P. walks more than he strikes out, which is a good skill set to have, good defender at shortstop. We should see him probably in May or June after service time issues go out of the way. Nothing really holding him back from being in Philadelphia within the first month or two of the season.
1: I wouldn't expect it. Um, Obviously, if there there are significant struggles, it might be something that they want to want to hold off on. They might want to, you know, their development for him, their development plan for him might include seeing sustained success at the, at the triple a level. He had 86 games in double a last year. So 405 plate appearances. That's certainly not nothing, but it's not an extended run in the upper minors. And so if we're talking only a couple months into the season, uh, into June, you know, they might say, okay, we really want to see him have a a little bit more time, a little bit more seasoning, um, heading into this season. But I certainly don't think it's his ability. Abilities that will hold him back from contributing at the major league level, and and for him, he's someone who's got a little bit of a stronger glove than someone like Seager. Uh, he's got a very strong arm, like Seager does. He's got uh, better speed, so he's got more range in the field. He lacks the same type of power, but both are are very strong hitters. And, and like I said, his name was brought up for the the top of the list, and and again, it was more of an outside thing. But it's, it shows kind of the, the recognition and admiration for the talent level that Crawford has.
0: I want to skip around on the list a little bit. I'm just going to skip to number six um, and talk about Julio Urias, who the Dodgers let have optional eye surgery during the season last year. Was that just a way that he's so young? Was that just a way that they could keep his innings down so that he wouldn't make the major league so early and so young?
1: Yeah, I think it was something that it was exactly that. I think it was a planned elective eye surgery in the middle of the year because they're very uh, conscious of the amount of innings and stress that they're putting on a guy who is as young as uh, Urias is. And given that, it seemed like a reasonable thing. He had uh, since birth this eye. You know, I think people have seen the pictures in previous reports, but his left eye um, had something kind of over the top of it. And it wasn't a serious impediment at all, but um, it was. It was a way to get that taken care of and also serve the dual purpose of limiting his innings and giving him a break in the middle of the year, which I think, you know, you see when guys are coming back from injury or people are on uh, innings limits that teams struggle with how to deal with that we saw that with matt harvey this year right that it's do you delay the open to the season and have them enter a season despite having a little bit of a layoff or not the standard spring training do you try and rest them in the middle of the season and throw off the rhythm there or do you just shut them down towards the end of the season and put yourself in an awkward position if you're in the playoffs obviously less of a concern for a minor leaguer but they were able to give him that time off uh in the middle of the year as well as consistently limit his times through the order and his exposure over individual outings.
0: You expect to see him this year with the Dodgers?
1: I don't know if I'd go so far as expect, but it wouldn't surprise me to see him in something of a role like David Price had with the Rays a few years back where he came up towards the end of the season, had uh, a couple starts, and then uh, was a relief ace out of the, the bullpen there. You know, the Dodgers Uh, They've tried to address their relievers this year, but someone with his stuff and his poise, you know, he's someone I watched uh, online, admittedly, but I watched his first start uh, in the in low A, uh, in the minors, when when he was 16, and he was busting people inside, he shows a lot of resolve and poise on the mound. And so, I don't think they'd be afraid to put him there in terms of his approach and his mental state and attitude towards being in the big leagues. It, it's all about you know how many innings he has on his arm and kind of whether they need to use him or not. I, I think they'd probably like to get him more time in the minors uh, than the rest of us in the prospect world would like. We'd like to see him on the big stage, obviously.
0: Let's talk about Jan Moncada for a few minutes. He is a highly ranked second baseman, which is in itself rare. A lot of the middle infielders who are ranked highly, especially in the top 10, are shortstops. He is playing second baseman in an organization that has second base locked up for years, but that also is going to see some shifts in position next year when Ortiz retires and Hanley likely moves to DH and Pablo will probably move to first. So can this kid accelerate his uh, path to the major leagues by playing third base? Is that an option for him?
1: Yeah, he's he's certainly got the tools to do so, um, but I I don't know that that's necessarily the, necessarily the plan for him. I think you know the Red Sox have tended to be a very patient organization and willing to let guys pile up at positions and. and, and you know, keep them where they're most valuable, um, and not just do you know similar to what uh, they wouldn't necessarily do what the Braves did with uh, Jose Peraza, which was they moved him off shortstop because they said we have Andrelton Simmons. You know, obviously a few years down the line, and and that situation has changed for Atlanta. They obviously have neither of them, but. You kind of see that the the plan for moving him off shortstop because you have someone entrenched there didn't wouldn't have necessarily worked out for them in that case, and so I, I think the Red Sox will leave Mancada where he's most comfortable. You know, this is also a guy coming over from Cuba that faces cultural issues and cultural cultural adaptation, and when you're dealing with that, you know, throwing an entire new culture at him and then also asking him to learn a new position is a tough thing to do. Obviously, he's had a year to, to kind of adapt and get comfortable, but it can still be very hard being away from the the type of culture and society that you're used to, away from your family. And and he is a young guy dealing with all of that. So they might leave him at, at second base a little longer, and it should be something that he's able to adapt to relatively quickly if and when they need to do that for him uh, or if and when they need him to do that, I should say. Um, But I wouldn't necessarily anticipate it immediately. I think they'd rather see him, especially after the slow start in low A last year, uh, get off to a good start and be as comfortable as possible in high A this year before going ahead and doing anything like that.
0: Another player, an interesting player, is Joey Gallo, whose power is so off the charts, but he's blocked in Texas by Adrian Beltre. Um, there's players at you know first base. He's got that, that cluster with Fielder and Moreland. Maybe he could play the outfield. The power, obviously, is there, and it's ready right now. We saw that in his brief stint when he came up. What does Gallo have to do to actually stick on a roster?
1: I think that that's going to depend a little bit on if the Rangers kind of address their outfield situations. I think they see him as part of part of the solution right now. Uh, You know, if they wanted to do something like uh, splurge and go get Dexter Fowler, I think that could obviously change things for Gallo. And I don't think that would necessarily be the worst thing. We all acknowledge that strikeouts are going to be part of Gallo's game. Uh, He had 30 just under 40 percent in triple-a last year in 53 games he wasn't much better he was at 33 and percent in double-a games last year and he was well over 40 percent in the majors so I, I think there are obviously things to address there while acknowledging that they're not ev- he's not ever going to be a sub-20 percent guy or probably even sub-25 percent guy in terms of strikeout rate that said uh he's someone who has the athleticism and the arm to play in the outfield. he uh, A lot of teams liked him as a pitcher in uh, coming out of high school and uh, he questioned whether he could stick at third base. He certainly has an arm for it. I've seen him in person there. I think he has the actions to stay there. Um, it's not necessarily going to be the most pretty, especially when you're a franchise used to seeing Adrian Beltre in the field, but I do think he can be a long-term guy at third base if the opportunity is there obviously as you mentioned Beltray is there and so I think playing him in the outfield makes a lot of sense and I think it's something that if he shows you know he he did cut his strikeout rate down uh, in in the first half of 2014, and he showed the ability to do that while maintaining inc- his incredible power. If he can do that a little bit, I could see him sticking on the major major league roster to open the season or shortly thereafter. But I do think that he he's going to have to prove that he's not going to strike out almost half the time.
0: Looking over the list, one of the first things I noticed is that the Red Sox really gave up a lot to get Craig Kimbrell. Tell me about some of the prospects they lost in that deal.
1: Yeah, Manuel Margot is the the top guy on our list that, that went over to San Diego in that deal. Um, he's someone who we think has the potential to be an impact defender he's got double plus speed 70 grade speed uh, and he's got a really good natural bat to ball ability and he's not necessarily the strongest guy in the world but he is he's got some strength and he puts a charge into the ball for a guy his size and so he's someone who Again, we wouldn't necessarily expect expect that over the fence power, but he can put the ball into the gaps and he can take the extra base with his speed. So he's not exactly a liability at the plate either. Um, so he's he's the top guy on our list. And then you know, for the Padres, number two on our list is Javier Guerra. I know uh, some outlets had him as a top fifty guy. We had him just outside the top fifty on our one hundred and one. And he's someone who's a sure, um, a no doubt shortstop and that's something that carries incredible value I think you know we had We had an incredible number of up-the-middle players on our list this year. I think we had 19 shortstops. The the thing about that, though, is not all of them are necessarily going to stay there, and that's something that's kind of built into where they're ranked. Uh, Guerra is going to stay there. He's got a very strong glove. He's got a very strong arm. He's got a plus arm, and he um, he shows power at the plate. Now, he's kind of the inverse of Margot at the plate in that Margot isn't that strong but can make hard contact. Guerra... Guerra has a chance for average power, and from shortstop, that's a very big deal. But he's not the same type of natural hitter that Margot is in terms of contact ability and and hitting for average.
0: The Reds made an interesting deal when they traded Todd Frazier this offseason, at least I found it interesting, as they didn't seem to get one of those top prospects in return. Did any of those guys even make the top 101?
1: Yeah, we had Jose Peraza. He ended up on the back end of our one oh one. He was at ninety two in twenty fifteen. He's at eighty one this year. So he did take a step forward. Part of that was, you know, he, he got to the major leagues with the Dodgers. Uh he he didn't perform particularly well particularly well well there but uh, he, he did make the majors and he showed the ability in the minors to do you know what it is people thought he could do at his best which was hit for average and steal bases um, he has the opportunity now to be a shortstop in the Reds organization some of that's going to depend on Zach Kozar and his recovery from injury they've already announced that Eugenio Suarez is going to be at third base and so Peraza has a chance to impact the Reds either at second base should uh, Brandon Phillips uh, get injured or traded or uh, at shortstop or even in center field, if they want to give him a try out there. he's He has that type of athletic ability. He's got tr- tremendous range at shortstop. Uh, he, his arm isn't as strong as the guys we've kind of been mentioning, guys like Guerra, but it's enough to, to handle the position, especially given all the balls he can get to. And, you know, this is a, a potential top-of-the-order hitter as someone who can, again, hit for average and, and steal a lot of bases.
0: Sometimes, prospects and elite prospects pan out they turn into great players or sometimes they just turn into contributors which are both valuable uh sometimes they bust out is there a skill set that tends to lead to more busts than others
1: well i you know bust is is all about uh perception you know what we expect out of certain players so i think there are guys who are probably you know pretty successful major leaguers who are just role players and viewed as busts because of of what we thought they could be. So I think you look at guys with extreme tools as the ones that are more likely to to be busts than guys who, uh, just in terms of the perception of of the public and and even of scouts and and teams, um, if you have someone like, let's say, Nick Williams Nick Williams has a tremendous ability to to make contact and hit for average, and he makes extremely hard contact as well. I know. I, I feel like I'm. I'm a record that's skipping and, and saying that about hard contact, but these are the top prospects, so a lot of them are able to do it. Um and he's got a lot of power too, uh, despite not having that big a frame. He is an extremely athletic guy, though he's not a great defender. He doesn't read the ball off the bat well. Um, I've seen him take just go the absolute wrong direction for his first couple steps at times. Um but he's someone who's pretty high variance. He doesn't have the secondary skills that you'd want to see necessarily out of a top prospect. Uh, he can hit almost anything, and so he tries to hit almost anything. He doesn't take a lot of pitches. He's a he's a pretty good bad ball hitter, but that means he's going after bad balls, which is something that can break down over time or when you're facing higher and better competition. You know, he's someone who might be able to to beat up on Triple A pitching, but you know when he faces the quality and crispness of Major League uh, starting caliber pitchers, it, that ability kind of goes away, and we'll see how he's able to adapt. Uh, that might not be the case, but that's, that's a t- uh, a, an example of a profile that could be seen as a bust, but there's also reason why he is as high as he is on, our, on a list like ours.
0: Last year saw Orlando Arcia jump from 93 to 12. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Do you see a jump like that coming? Do you see a guy that's either just missed or in the bottom end of the list jumping up into the top 15 like that? Who might that be going into next year?
1: Uh, That's always a tough question. I think... You know, there there's a guy. He's he's not quite as far down, but Daz Cameron was the I believe the 34th overall selection for the Astros this year. Um, he we have him at 85. He's Mike Cameron's son, so so people should know the bloodlines there. He's someone who's obviously uh, a, a very talented kid. He has a lot of baseball skill, uh, as they say. It was something that you know a lot of these multi-sport guys tend to have questions about whether they're going to be. Um, you know, they're obviously athletic. We have guys like uh, Anthony Alford kind of had that tag on him. He was a football player as well. And people wonder if those skills were going to adapt to kind of the baseball skills that are required of a guy. Sometimes they do in Alford, Alford's case, uh, and other times they don't. Uh, Cameron has those things built in. He's been around baseball all his life. Um, and he's someone who has the ability to hit. Uh, we have him as a future above-average hitter. Uh, we don't have him as above average power but i think he's someone who at, you know he's born in nineteen ninety seven we're dealing with very young guys here and so if he can uh... grow into his body if he can develop a little more power he's someone who could see a serious rise in the ranks and and all of that's just gonna depend on what he's able to show us not just in terms of production but in terms of the the types of adjustments he makes facing pro uh, pro talent and and again adding things like loft or backspin to the balls to show us he can put the ball over the fence.
0: It's always good to see guys on these prospect lists who were born after I graduated high school. It's a good feeling.
1: Oh, it's devastating. We just released the uh, Blue Jays' top ten, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is on it, and he's a 1999 birthday
0: yeah we're getting close to some of these kids being born in 2000 which is really going to be the end of us all uh very quickly the goriel brothers have uh announced that they're seeking to play in major league baseball it's two stars in cuba very different players one is an established player who is perceived to be one of the best players in cuba and has been for the last decade the other much younger 22 23 years old what can we expect from them uh this season and in the future
1: Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that we should expect anything from the younger one this season. Um, There's a strong case to be made that he won't sign until October, even if he's ruled eligible. Like you said, he's 22 years old right now because of the international bonus uh, or the the international pool rules and and who's able to sign guys. And when uh, if because he has five years in the Cuban leagues, uh, when he turns 23, he would be essentially an unrestricted. International free agent, in that it won't cost teams uh, to go over their bonus by signing him because he'll be 23 and have the requisite years of of service time in the Cuban league. So, if he, you know, any team that signs him or would want to sign him prior to then is not only going to exceed their their bonus and not and be penalized for the next two years, but they're going to pay an overage. And if they deem him worth that, he should understand that. If he waits till October, he's going to get all of that money instead of getting half of that money and MLB taking half of it as as a penalty to the team that signs him. Uh, his older brother, that's Lords, by the way, Lords Jr., who's 22. Uh, Ulietsky at 31 is you know he's older than a lot of the guys who have been coming over from cuba we had uh hector oliveira last year at, at 30 years old he got a he got 62 and a half million dollars uh yulieski is basically the best cuban baseball player and has been for the last several years he hit almost 500 last year uh he hit 494 I think in the in the 2015-2016 season, he only struck out twice the entire season. Um, he's not an extreme power hitter. Uh, what he is is someone who can play third base. He can obviously make a lot of contact. Uh, he he has a strong eye at the plate and. He's someone who could contribute immediately. He wouldn't take, you know, a team might give him some time in the minors just to adjust to being in the U.S., but he's not someone who requires time in the minors in terms of development, as you would expect from someone who's 31. At the same time, uh, MLB's rules on when these guys are eligible and and how long it takes them to be uh, cleared for a signing means that we might not see him until the very end of this season if 2016, at all. Uh, he has to establish residency in another country. And then f- once he does that, th- it takes MLB some time to clear these guys. And given how many Cuban players have come over in the last year uh, plus, there's something of a bottleneck going on at MLB right now. So it- it's not clear when he'll be able to sign. Once he does, I would expect to see him pretty quickly. And I expect him to be a. Um, a a solid player i don't know if i would go so far as a star but he's got that type of raw ability uh but i wouldn't expect it to last that long again just given the age for yulieski
0: you've been listening to craig goldstein you can give him a follow on twitter at cd goldstein and check out the bp 101 on baseball craig thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today
1: thank you for having me again i really appreciated it